So I hope you have your Bibles in front of you right now. Daniel chapter 7 is where we're going to be. And um, this gets us started into uh, Daniel's divided into two halves, uh, kind of the narrative portions of the first half and the apocalyptic portions of the second half. And this is uh, part of that second half section. And I think uh, you would agree with me, those of you who have thought anything about this, you would agree that there's so much confusion and even differences of perspective and interpretation on what the Bible says about the end times. Is that fair to say? A lot of, a lot of different perspectives on the end times. And, and because of that, I think a lot of people choose to even bypass these sections of Scripture. So, you know, when, they, when they're reading through the Bible and they're saying they're reading through the Bible, what they're really doing is when they come to passages like this, they're just letting their eyes glance at this page and then they're saying they read the Bible. And they move on to the next section because it's too confusing. And they're like, I, I just, I don't get it. So why should I read it? And on the other hand, you have other people who are like, you know what? I find that so fascinating. It's the most interesting thing in the Bible. And they dig into it like so deeply and almost to the point of obsessing over the passages and trying to make every little detail of what they're seeing in these dreams and visions uh, represent something. And uh, this message uh, is going to be a, a little bit different because I actually, what I want to do is use it as a platform to teach us a little bit about how to interpret these apocalyptic sections of the Bible in addition to getting into Daniel 7 and actually preaching the text. So I want to do both of those things in this message. It's a bit ambition, but, ambitious, but um, this is the 11 o'clock service and I already did it at 9 so I know it's possible. So we're going, to, um, we're going to look at Daniel 7 in just a moment and the visions that Daniel had there, visions that are actually very, very relevant to us today and the reason why we should just never skip over sections like this. So we'll get to that in a moment. But as far as how this actually plays out in the book of Daniel, I've already talked about the two different sections of Daniel, but let me lay out a little bit of a timeline uh, here for us to look at. Now, Daniel uh, came to Babylon when he was a young man. If you look at the, the lowest line, you can see that this is really the scope of da almost Daniel's entire life. He was maybe 13, 14, 15 years old when he was carried from Israel uh, to Babylon and put into the service there. By the time you get to the end, Daniel chapter 6, and he's getting the visions of 10, 11, and 12. Daniel 6, of course, is the lion's den. Uh, by the time you get to the end of all of that, he's in his mid to late 80s. This is his entire life. There's a huge gap in there, obviously, between the time he was a teenager and what we're going to look at today in Daniel chapter 7, where he's in his mid to late 60s by the time he receives the vision that we're going to see today. So he served in Babylon and Medo-Persia, two different empires under what you see here is three different kings, but there were actually three other kings that were wedged in here who served for very, very short periods of time. But these are the three that are mentioned in the book of Daniel itself. So that gives you a whole sweep, and you can see that our study of Daniel is following a chrono chronological um, path rather than simply going Daniel 1 through 12 and looking at it that way. So the visions of Daniel 7 and 8, which we're going to look at this week and next week, fit in between Daniel 4 and 5. And we know that because at the very beginning of Daniel 7, it says, this is now the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, as opposed to being part of Nebuchadnezzar, where he was during his younger years. So that gives you a whole sweep of the thing. And, and if you want to look at this a little more closely and kind of compare it to what you're reading in the text, we're going to provide this resource uh, tomorrow online. It'll be on our Facebook page and on our website as well. So that gives you a sweep of Daniel's uh, life. Now, a word about apocalyptic literature. And again, all of this is going to go up on the screen, but all of this will make available to you online as well. I want to help us, before we jump into Daniel 7, know how to interpret it, how to interpret and approach these um, sections of apocalyptic literature of the Bible. First of all, I'm using this word apocalyptic, and we should define it. Apocalypse simply means revealing or revelation. And um, this is different than prophecy in the sense that prophecy came to, from God to a specific prophet, and God spoke directly to the prophet, gave the prophet the words to actually write down. Apocalyptic is different in the sense that it's always dreams and visions, so it's a little bit more indirect and, and much less specific. Prophecy also deals with both future things and present things in the sense that some prophecy is simply sermons spoken to people at the time. It's just that God was giving that sermon direct 
through the prophet to the people about something they needed to repent of right now. And some prophecy dealt with the future. All apocalyptic deals with future. And so there's a difference between those two. So you're not going to hear me use the word prophecy or prophet very much. You're going to hear apocalyptic a lot. So it means revealing or revelation. It has a negative tone because it communicates, and Hollywood's not wrong about this. Anytime Hollywood uses the word apocalypse, it's something bad is happening. Amen? <laughs> like something bad is happening. And so it always communicates this kind of negative sense of doom as the end draws near. So that's not unwarranted. It's actually built into it. And so the apocalyptic is, is um, the, the, the sense is this, things will get very bad before they get perfect. Okay, that's the thing for us as the followers of Christ. Things are going to get very bad before they get perfect. And for unbelievers here, apocalyptic literature should actually strike some fear into you. It's a fearful foreboding thing. For believers though, even though it comes through fire, even though things are going to get very bad before they get perfect, I know they're actually going to get perfect. I know they're going to get to a very awesome place. And so apocalyptic literature, talking about all this kind of doom and gloom stuff, also has built into it for the believer hope and joy and optimism at the final victory that Jesus Christ is going to give us and the vindication that he's going to bring to his people. And so that's kind of a sense of what apocalyptic is. Now, secondly, I'm just going to say this because there is so much disagreement over interpretation. There should be no division in the church over interpretive differences. In other words, you should be able to sit beside, engage in worship with, be part of the same church, and be on the same mission with people who have a very different perspective on what's going to happen in the end times. This isn't something that should uh, divide us. And um, it never has, not in this church. And, and my guess is we have a great diversity of opinions on this and perspectives on it. And we probably have some people who've never even thought much about it and don't really have a position on it. And that's awesome. And that has never hindered our mission. It has never hindered our focus, nor should it ever, even though we're laying some things out a little bit more specifically today. Going a little more deeply into that, thirdly, I would just say this, no, there should be no excessive preoccupation with the end times. No excessive preoccupation with the end times. We need to be careful of speculations that we put on top of the apocalyptic. We need to be careful about looking at the news and then inserting our contemporary situation into the pages of the Bible, forcing these contemporary events into the scriptures. We don't want to let anything, if, if we're so preoccupied with the end times, it might hinder the primary mission that Jesus Christ has given us into this world, which is love him and love people. Love God, love people. Make disciples. It's not trying to figure out, for example, if the European Union is the beast with the 10 horns and who the Antichrist is and trying to pin it on Oprah and all of that. We're just, <laughs> we're just like, we're just not going, I'm not a fan of Oprah's, but I don't think she's the Antichrist. I'm just saying. <laughs> Fourth, I just added this one. No excessive preoccupation with the end times, but also no ignoring or neglecting of the apocalyptic. And, and this is where some of us can go. We can... We can just say, you know what, I don't understand it anyway. I'm not even going to read it. I'm not going to think about it at all. But it is Scripture. And we can't forfeit the motivation, the, the compelling motivation that comes from reading this. We can't forfeit the encouragement that comes from reading this. We can't forfeit the insight into who God is that we get in the apocalyptic literature. Because in many of these passages, we get a glimpse, like we will today, a glimpse into heaven. I mean, you get to see God like you don't normally see him. And so we want to not ignore, not neglect it in any way. I would add this uh, bullet here. Um, and this is more of a theological term uh, for those who are kind of headed in that direction. Uh, the perspective that we're going to take on the apocalyptic is that of a progressive dispensationalism. That's the framework that we look at, progressive dispensationalism. Now, you've heard me use this phrase before, and that phrase and this phrase mean the same thing. It is this. We believe in the now, but not yet. Okay, the now, but not yet. That is to say, some things have been fulfilled, but they have not yet been fully fulfilled. Great example of this is the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ came to this earth. 
He sacrificed his life. He preached about the kingdom of God, and he inaugurated by his coming and by the sending of the Holy Spirit and the establishing of the church, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. But you and I would both agree that while we're seeking to live by the kingdom's principles, we have not yet fully arrived at that, and that we are awaiting yet a future fulfillment, a full fulfillment of the kingdom of God on this earth. So the kingdom of God is now, here's the phrase, it is now, but it is not yet, okay? It's both of those things, and that's what we're talking about by talking about progressive dispensationalism. Another example of that uh, would simply be that uh, we understand that the church is uh, getting us started on the kingdom of God, but that there is as yet a future role for Israel who during this season has been set aside. But when you read the scriptures, it's pretty clear God's going to do something with the Jewish people again yet in the future. So now, kingdom of God, expression, uh, expressed in the church, but the not yet part is there's still something going on with the Jewish people that we're awaiting. So hopefully that's kind of like a simple explanation of kind of where we're going with all of that. Here's a sixth bullet. The twofold primary purpose of the apocalyptic literature in the Bible is A, be, be encouraged, be encouraged because God is in control, which is a primary theme of the book of Daniel. God is sovereign. God is in uh, control. So be encouraged by that. He tells us more about who he is. He tells us he's all powerful. He tells us he's in control. And therefore, we can endure our often very difficult circumstances. We can get through that. We can push through it. We can remain faithful to God because we know he's in control. That encourages us in the midst of difficult seasons of our lives. And then the second of the twofold primary purpose is to be ready for the end. And you're ready when you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've committed your life to following Him, and you're seeking to live a holy life and to be on mission to tell other people about Him. That's what we're talking about by being ready, so that when He comes, that's what He finds. You living a holy life as best you're able with the power of the Holy Spirit, and you on mission to tell other people about Him. So the twofold primary purpose of the apocalyptic, be encouraged, be ready, here's some other purposes. The apocalyptic reminds us about the unseen world. It, re it reminds us that there is a battle operating, a battle raging beyond our sight in the spirit realm. That there are angels and demons who are at war. That there, that there is uh, Satan who is at war with our Savior, with the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things I have appreciated, I've been able to travel to Africa several times and in the various countries that I've gone to, is always the same. The thing about our African brothers and sisters is this, they do not see much of a line between the spirit realm and the physical realm. Whereas we in the Western world, if we can't see it with our eyes, if we can't figure it out with our minds, if it isn't rational to us, then we don't accept it. Whereas in Africa, they fully understand that behind the thing that we see, there is this spiritual warfare that's taking place. And I appreciate the perspective that I've received as a result of those relationships and those visits. So we have to understand there's an unseen world. The apocalyptic moves us in that direction, helps us to see that. And then I would add this also, that we see the darkness of our own hearts. We see our own desperate need for redemption through Jesus Christ. In fact, what I find out is that my life, as I read this material, I just go like, my life is a microcosm of the greater spiritual battle that's going on. I mean, I mean, you know, like, I mean, I have this battle, you know, I have sin in my life and I want that sin gone because I love Jesus. I don't want that sin in my life anymore, but I feel tempted and sometimes I give in to that and I need to ask for forgiveness and I have this ongoing spiritual battle in my life. How many people have that, right? And the rest of you didn't raise your hand, you lied about that, so... <laughs> I mean, we all have that. That's the spiritual battle. And when you think about that in terms of your own life, that's a microcosm. It's just a little one-person example of the greater spiritual battle that's going on in the entire cosmos and everything that God has created, both seen and unseen. And then I would add uh, this last one, um, because how we interpret the Bible is so important. And I hope you will understand that as I get up here every week that I am operating by a set of rules concerning interpretation that I learned that were passed on to me in my training, 
Okay, so there are a set of rules for interpreting the Bible. It's not coming out. I'm not just pulling this out of my back pocket. I'm not just making these things up. I'm, I'm following a process to interpret the Bible. And when it comes to the apocalyptic, there's a, a kind of an extra set of other rules that you follow in addition to the normal ones to make sure that you're interpreting it properly. So here's a couple of things that I would just say about that. First of all, respect the original intent. We ask the question, and we really do this for every passage of Scripture, what what were the original readers thinking? What was their situation? What were they thinking as they read this? And to go one step even before that would be, what was the original author intending when he wrote this to them? And of course, even before that, because we understand that the biblical authors wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we go back even further to say, what was God's intent for this book to these readers at that time? And when, and when we go there, then we begin to get the actual interpretation, God's intention for the original author. And then we bridge that into our context and our time. So respect the original intent and then let it wash over you. I, I've talked about this before in terms of apocalyptic literature, that we need to let these passages wash over us like a wave of the sea kind of bowling us over and overwhelming us. And what I mean by that is that we need to not worry about making every little detail of these apocalyptic passages mean something. We don't need to lock down every particular detail. We need to read it and say, this is overwhelming. This is awesome. I don't fully understand it, but it's awesome. Whoa! It's an appropriate interpretation of the apocalyptic. Okay, you understand where that's going. So let it wash over you as a wave of the sea. And then because of that, really, use reserve and caution in interpreting it like, like no other passage of Scripture. You want to be careful whenever you're interpreting the Scripture, but like use more reserve and more caution because... The dreams and visions are filled with illusions and images and symbols that are bizarre and mysterious and enigmatic, and we can't lock them down exactly. There's a theologian, his name is Tremper Longman III, and he's kind of right in our lane in terms of how we would approach the scriptures. And, and uh, he's written a lot about the apocalyptic. And he, he wrote this in his commentary on Daniel, images communicate truth to be sure, but not with precision. And so we don't want to make images go further than the original author intended for them to go. And then as an application of that, the next bullet is simply this. Remember that most of the numbers that you read, if not all of them, are symbolic. The numbers are not to be taken literally. And that is to say, if you see the number 10 in the scriptures, in the apocalyptic, you see the number 10, it may not actually refer to 10 things. That it may simply refer to the complete number of things or the perfect number of things or the fullness of things and not exactly 10. And that's going to help us as we see a lot of these passages and wonder, is it exactly, does there have to be 10? And is there exactly, and that's going to help us interpret this. And then finally, and this ties in with the now but not yet, there are full and partial, and I would even add multiple fulfillments of these apocalyptic words that we're looking at. And hopefully that uh, helps you. I went through that super fast. And what I just said to you is literally a three-hour lecture at a seminary in a seminary classroom. And I've given it to you in about five minutes. And so again, we'll make that whole list available to you. Uh, and it'll all be on the video and the audio anyways, if you want to follow up a little bit more with that. But that's going to help frame up what we're going to do now with Daniel chapter 7, which is where we're going to go right now. And this chapter compels us toward readiness. Are you ready for what's going to happen in the apocalypse? And what we want to really say is, I'm ready for whatever. This is the declaration. I'm ready for whatever God is planning for our world. And I, I would want it that every person in this room would be ready for whatever God is going to do in this world. Amen? That we could all get there to that place of readiness. Now, that's going to be true when you see. We're going to look at two couplets here, two phrases. I'm ready for whatever God is planning for our world when I see both the coming chaos on earth and, we'll see this in a moment, the current awesomeness of heaven. 
all right, I feel really bad because we haven't we've gone all this way into the sermon. I haven't read the scriptures yet. I'm pretty much set a record right now for preaching the most without referencing the Bible. So uh, Daniel chapter seven, let me read the first eight verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Then after this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had 10 horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. The word great there means, and some of your other translations will have pompous or, or boastful or proudful of things. These are arrogant words that are actually being spoken by this little horn that's uh, arisen out of uh, the ten horns. And what's striking first about this, this dream that Daniel has had, these visions that he sees, is the similarity between these and the dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter 2. And in fact, if we can look at a comparison chart here, you see that there's a parallel that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw this great statue. He saw it described in terms of a head of gold, chest of arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and, and feet of iron and clay, a mix. And Daniel saw four things, the lion with eagle's wings, bear with ribs in its mouth, leopard with four wings, four heads, strong beasts with 10 horns. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 that the first of those, these are parallel visions, the first of those was indeed Babylon, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar that, that Daniel was a part of. And um, of course, as he's receiving this vision, Babylon's about ready to fall and is about to move into the second phase of this, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. And as you track it through history, and almost every conservative scholar who's interpreted these passages uh, will, will agree that we're looking at Babylon, Medo-Persia, then the next kingdom that came was Alexander the Great. These are all prophecies given hundreds of years beforehand. Alexander the Great, compared to the leopard, he moved with such rapidity. It was like a blitzkrieg across the Middle East. He moved so fast. But then he, he dies on the battlefield and his kingdom splits into four. And the leopard, of course, had four heads and four wings. And then the next empire that comes is the Roman Empire. It's so strong and it lasts uh, for almost five centuries, five or six centuries. And it is the strong beast with ten horns. And you just get a sense in the passage, and we'll see this as we look at it. There's just something different. That's exactly the words that Daniel uses. There's something different about this fourth kingdom. And you get the sense that, again, in the partial fulfillment and future fulfillment thing, you look at the first three, and from our perspective, they're all fulfilled. And the, the last one is partially fulfilled in that the kingdom was inaugurated by Christ during that Roman period. But we all have a great sense that there's something more to come, that that kingdom is still going to be stronger yet and a future thing for us. And that takes us to where we are right now and in the not yet phase of all of this, still waiting. And it's not necessary for us to try and discern the exact information or who of who or what the image represents or what the beasts represent in our future. It represents something, but speculating on it often just makes us look foolish. And it seems like every generation wants to look at the news 
pin it to certain Bible passages, and then find out 10, 20, 30 years later, their prophecies were off the mark, and another generation does the exact same thing all over again. And we need to stop short of trying to pin things directly to what we're seeing in the Scripture. What's really important for us to see initially is the point we're making here that there's chaos on earth, that there's chaos on earth when all of this happens. In fact, in verse 2, this is what uh, Daniel sees, four winds, he sees the great sea, and the wind is literally blowing from every direction. And that's causing this great tumult to happen. The, the, the seas are choppy and, 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 and angry in essence. And out of this chaos of the sea, these beasts emerge, verse 3 tells us. And this is the picture we need to have in our minds. What we're expected to see is a world in chaos. What we're expected to see is the depravity of humanity. What we're supposed to see is human nature on display and the evil, especially as it's reflected in human governments. That's what we're supposed to see. In fact, John Lennox says that Daniel shows us what the attempt to eliminate God will eventually lead to. This is exactly where we live today that our governments in the West are so intent on eliminating God from the public sphere. This is the thing we're dealing with. To push it out of education, to push it out of government, to push it down over, as we've said earlier in this, season, this series, to push us all over as believers to the margins of society. This is where it's going. And Daniel shows us 2,600 years ago, what the attempt to eliminate God will eventually lead to, not freedom, but incalculable oppression. Chaos. This is what we're seeing in the West. This is what we're seeing in our country today. The suppression of religion, the suppression of freedoms, of rights, the proliferation of immorality, in the form of the deterioration of marriage as an institution. Unless you'd be thinking here, you know, oh yes, he's talking about the same-sex question and, and how, how same-sex couples can now be married, and that's not really the issue. The issue is that long before there was a same-sex question, divorce is rampant in our culture because we'd allowed it to be so. The problem is not with same-sex couples. The problem is with heterosexual couples who didn't elevate marriage to the level it should be. And so this is on all of us. The continued blight of abortion, the new threat that we're facing in these days of euthanasia, the liberalizing of laws around marijuana and alcohol so people can pursue greater and greater pleasures, the age of consent, being elevated for sexual relationships. We live, as we said a couple of weeks ago, we live in an age of disruption where in these postmodern times to disrupt society is the stalk and trade of many politicians and activists. If we're not already in the days of chaos, and I'm not sure we are, we're certainly taking the first steps toward a society that is chaotic. Now, that could be super depressing, except that we know there's more to this chapter. And so, none of this that I've said should get us down because God, in essence, is just preparing us for something awesome. The darker the world around us gets, the brighter the light of Jesus Christ shines into it. Amen? The darker the world gets, the more the light of Jesus Christ shines. And so, I'm ready for whatever uh, God is planning for our world, the coming chaos, but also the current awesomeness of heaven. Now, notice, it's not the future awesomeness of heaven. Heaven is awesome right now. Heaven has always been awesome in every way. And Daniel is given this incredible opportunity to see into the throne room of God. Now, picking up at uh, verse 9, as I look, thrones were placed in the ancient of days, that's God, 
uh, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its, its wheels were, his throne has wheels. I wrote in my margin, awesome. I mean, that's his throne is, it's fire and it has, this is like a Hot Wheels car. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. The, the stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. I got my calculator. That's a hundred million. Do you think he counted that or just that was an estimate? What do you think? I'm pretty sure he probably just looked and went, this looks like a hundred million people. And if any of us are wondering whether or not heaven is going to be populated, you know, like I think this is the answer. That an overwhelming and innumerable number of people are going to be in the heavenly realms. We need not fear that at all. God is populating heaven with his people. And so then uh, verse 10 continues, the, this is like a dramatic, I mean, we've just been building to something by now. This is a dramatic moment. This is like the Hollywood intense music moment, okay? The court sat in judgment and the books were open. I mean, this is, this is justice is coming. Now listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have him as Lord and Savior, you have no fear of the judgment. You're going to be ushered into heaven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You, you, know, you just bypass all of that and straight to heaven. I mean, this, this is God opening up the books to talk about injustice in the world, to talk about those who did not embrace him as Lord and Savior. And this is so important for us to understand that God will mete out justice in this world. And for people in this room who have not had justice in this life and are not likely to get it, where someone hurt you or abused you or destroyed your marriage or took advantage of you in some way, physically, sexually, emotionally, financially, you may, I'll just tell you, you may never see justice in this world. And I understand that this world is extremely unfair and governed by the principles of sin, not of righteousness. But you have no fear of not being vindicated in time because the day is coming when Jesus Christ will open the books and he will vindicate you. And if your oppressor or your abuser did not repent and find the same forgiveness that you have, and they will be dealt with in this moment. And I can't think of hardly anything that's more encouraging than that. That God has my back. And God's going to vindicate me. And God's going to bring justice to this world. Well, that's also encouraging. And Daniel continues to see this vision. And I looked, verse 11, then because of the sound of the great words, the boastful, pompous, arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and, and a time. Now we find out that this beast was killed, this horn was taken care of. Verse 13, by the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, Daniel continues, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. Now listen, son of man, who is that? Who is that? Want to take a shot at it? That's Jesus. This is Jesus right here in the text. And to him was given dominion, verse 14, and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed Now we have this great image in this beast, this little horn and, and Christ wipes them out. The very same image is given to us in both Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. In both of the dreams, we come back to that chart again. We'll see as we add this last part. In, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw this big stone and it was hewn out by no human hand. And it came down and it crushed the feet of iron and clay of the great image. 
And here in Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes and takes care of the little horn, who is the, the Apostle Paul, or Apostle John, I'm sorry, calls him the Antichrist. And in both cases, the great image, the little horn, the world kingdoms, all the beasts, the Antichrist, are destroyed by the cut stone, are destroyed by the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior. And all of this is seen as part of his vision of the future, of heaven, of the unseen spiritual realm. And when we realize the awesomeness of what God is doing through his son, Jesus Christ, we can't help but be ready for whatever God is going to do in this world and in our lives. There's a cosmic battle taking place beyond what we can see. And God will win. In fact, these apocalyptic visions are always written kind of like in the past tense, like that we're already seeing it. It's not that God will win, it's that God has won. God has won, and the victory is ours. Now, seeing that victory on the timeline of our history will not come without much pain and sorrow and loss even to those of us who are the followers of Christ. And so I need to be ready for whatever, whatever God is planning for our world when I see, here's the second couplet now, both the coming devastation of the church and the already accomplished victory of Jesus Christ that we just spoke about. Now, not surprisingly, Daniel's a bit confused by what he's seeing. So notice verse 16 now. Verse 16, he says, I approached one of those um, who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So this is the scene where you're, you're walking downtown and a big crowd is gathered because there's been like something's happened on the other side of the crowd and you don't know what it is. And so you say to the person beside you, the other bystander, you just say to them, hey, do you know what's going on? Now, Daniel's seen this incredible vision of the, of the throne room and about everything that's going to take place with these beasts and the sea and everything. He's seen the whole thing, but at this point, he doesn't have a full grasp of what he's seeing. And so he turns to one of the bystanders. I don't know if this is like, you know, a, 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 a human being who's, who's now like in heaven. I don't know if it's just one of the angels. I just don't know who it is. We're not really told specifically, but he turns to him. He says, hey, buddy, like, can you figure this out? And presumably, he asked the right bystander, the right angel, what's going on because, verse 16, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of things. And we're going to come to, back to verses 17 and 18 in a few moments, but turn to verse 19 now. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which again, Daniel can see, is different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying. And he goes on to describe again this fourth beast, which is just a horrific scene. Verse 21, and I looked... This horn made, notice, he made war with the saints. And I, I find this so troubling in verse 21. And prevailed over them. He's prevailing over the, the, the Antichrist, the little horn, is, is prevailing over the saints. Do you find that troubling? That, that God's people who love and serve the sovereign, who's in control of everything and who's ultimately won everything, is, is allowing this to happen where he's prevailing over his people? I mean, I would, I would find this super distressing, except that when I look at the next verse, 22, it starts with until. Yeah, this happened. It's going to be awful. Until. Until the ancient of days. This is all stated in a poetic form and uh, in prose form, and then it's, it moves into poetic. Verse 22, the prose continues, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints, notice, possessed the kingdom. That's the not yet part for us, but it's coming. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. And he goes through the exact same thing now, but just in, in poetic form. And so, you know, there's the people that understand prose and there's the people that understand poetry and they're usually not the same people. And so God's given to us two different ways so that we're going to get it. And he goes on to describe all of this. The second horn, verse 25, he shall speak words against, notice, he shall speak words against the most high. This antichrist is going to verbally 
publicly, vocally oppose God. And notice again, he's going to make war with the saints and prevail over them. And verse 25 says, as this say, he's going to wear out the saints. He's going to wear us out and shall think to change the times. He's going to do things differently and he's going to change the law. And they, the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, for some, some period of time that is symbolized by time, times, and half a time, whatever that is. I know a lot of people do a lot of gymnastics trying to figure that out. Some period of time, the saints are going to be given over to him. And that's going to be super distressing. The coming devastation of the church. The Antichrist will crush the church, and I hope that doesn't spin you out. That not much is going to be left of, of this kind of thing. Remember I said off the top, things are going to get very bad before they become perfect. Things are going to become very bad for the church. I mean, honestly, church is like super easy right now. I mean, comfortable seats, convenient times, nice people. You know, we, 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 we come here and it doesn't really cost us anything. Even, even people who are giving super generously to the work of Christ it, with both financial resources and, and of their time, even in those cases, really, it's not really sacrificial. It's not really costing us a whole lot, especially if you compare it to what's going to happen here. But that won't be true when the events of the last days begin. And I know that many of you who are part of the church today, who are hanging on to this, who are kind of attaching yourself to the things that we're doing, but whose faith is not really genuine, that you will scatter before you will sacrifice. Unless you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, when they, when they press you, and the only thing you can say is, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, or you deny him, one of those two things, many will refuse to make the profession. Now, the most common question that gets asked at this point is, how much time do I have? When is this all going to take place? That's the question we want to ask. And Tremper Longman, again, he said this, we have no firm basis for relating these periods to time as we know it. The interpretation of these specific texts awaits their proper moment. So we can't know the time. And in fact, Jesus' own followers, it's not a bad question. I mean, lots of people ask the question. Jesus' own disciples, after his resurrection and before his ascension, in fact, just minutes before his ascension, they ask him the question, are you at this time, this is Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, are you at this time, they say to him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? They knew the kingdom was inaugurated now, but that it was not yet fully inaugurated. Are you going to restore it now, Jesus? And Jesus answered them in Acts 1, 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know. But here's what I want you to do. And in, in verse 8, he said to them, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth, Samaria and the ends of the earth. He wanted them to go into the world and just do the mission. That's the thing that gets us ready for the coming of Christ, that we're on the mission. Get to the business of making disciples. Be his witnesses in the entire world. Tell people about him. Preach the gospel. Start churches. Do the ministry. Live a holy life for him. So we want to be ready for whatever God is planning for our world. We're going to be ready if we see both the coming devastation of the church. Be ready for that. But then also... The already, we need to see the already accomplished victory of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 17, back to that. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. We heard that already. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. 
We're going to receive the kingdom. The not yet is going to happen. God's going to give it to us. Now, again, to come back to that really important question that we, that we said we need to ask when we're interpreting the Bible is what did the original author intend for the original recipients? And the original recipients, the original readers are his Jewish brothers and sisters who are under Babylonian rule, a good portion of which are in exile in Babylon, and another group are still back in Israel with a temple that's burned down and walls that are knocked down, living in the ruins of what was Israel, under Babylonian authority. These are people who needed to be reminded because they had a covenant with God, and they're thinking at this point, God's not keeping his covenant. Look at the mess of this place. We don't even have a temple. We're not even really a people right now. And in the midst of that, that move towards despair, in the midst of their difficult circumstances, Daniel sends this, I just saw this vision. It's awesome. And the kingdom's going to be ours. The victory's already accomplished. God's going to keep his promises. And so this is encouraging to them. And it ought to be encouraging to us too. And again, we hear verse 26 and 7, the court shall sit in judgment, his dominion shall be taken away, speaking of the little horn, and be consumed and, and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And all of this, of course, points that we know where the victory comes from. It's the cross and the empty grave. That in that moment when Jesus Christ triumphed over the grave and came out of that tomb, he beat sin, he beat hell, he beat death. And life was presented and offered to those who would respond to him in faith. And that victory is already won. We're just mopping up the details. And that's the basis for our readiness for whatever God has for this world, whatever God's planning. Now, saying all of that, I anticipate kind of like a final question. Is it okay to still be somewhat confused and a little anxious about it all? I mean, is that okay? And I know some of you are like, yes, that's my question, exactly as I read all of this. And, and Daniel received these visions, just a couple of notes here. Verse one, Daniel received these visions as he lay in bed. Now this can often be the worst time of day for human beings like us because we get into bed and now it's quiet and now it's dark and we can't turn our minds off. How many people can't turn their minds off at night, right? I'm just rehearsing everything that went on during the day or I'm thinking about what's gonna happen tomorrow. This can be a really difficult time of the day for us when we lay on our beds. Verse, he says, this happened by night, verse two. And then he says in verses seven and 13, these are night visions. And we think about things happening at night, and if we've learned anything at all from Monsters, Inc., <laughs> and I'm pretty sure we have, it's that bad things happen at night. Every person here who's ever parented a young child knows that the most terrifying thing that can happen to you while you're sleeping is that your sweet five-year-old just comes and parks themselves beside you while you're sleeping and you wake up to them this close to you, and it's horrifying. Has that happened to anybody here? It, it's just terrifying when this happens. And all that to say, listen, bad things happen at night, and Daniel's receiving all these visions at night. And so Daniel says, verse 15, he gets all these visions, my spirit within me was anxious. This is Daniel. I mean, he's like a massive hero of the faith. And by this time, he's in his mid-60s receiving these visions, having been so faithful to God decade after decade after decade. This isn't a novice believer in God. He just saw a vision that God gave him, and he says he's anxious about it. He says, the visions of my head alarmed me. Verse 28, he says, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. I, I, went, I saw these, I went, what is a ghost? And by the way, if you want some more examples of this, the apostle Paul, the apostle John, the prophet Isaiah, all got glimpses into heaven and it affected all of them the same way. 
all these great heroes of the faith that we have, and they all were anxious and alarmed, and their color changed, and they felt like dead men when they saw these visions of heaven. And so is it okay to read and study this and still be somewhat confused and a little anxious about it all? The answer is yes, of course, because a lot of horrible things are going to happen before the end, before the glorious consummation of all history. And in fact, if you don't react as Daniel did, if you don't have some puzzlement, if you're not anxious about this at all, then I would just say you don't get it. From where I sit, those in greatest peril of missing out on God's great salvation are those who are sitting here right now and who are indifferent toward these apocalyptic visions. You are in peril. The one I'm most concerned about is the one who's unaffected by this, who feels nothing. Because you are unprepared. And the call of Daniel 7 is for us to be ready. Let's pray. Father, these um, visions are exciting, spectacular, bizarre. Father, they um, stir something up in us, or at least they ought to. And so, God, I pray, uh, first of all, for those in the room who have a profession of faith in Christ, who would count themselves as believers. And Father, I pray that everything that we've looked at today in your word would compel us and motivate us toward greater readiness. And Father, that it would impact, I just feel like this impact should be in every area of our lives. And how we spend our money and how we spend our time, who we spend it with, what we're doing with our lives. That all of that has to matter for eternity. And there would be nothing that we would be doing at any moment of any day that we would be ashamed to be doing at your coming. That God, we wouldn't do anything that would compromise our ability to speak for you and stand for you, even in the face of great opposition, which we know is coming. And so, Father, give those of us that are the followers of Christ here, Father, a greater resolve to live for you to anticipate the end of the age. And then, God, I pray a desperate prayer now for those in the room who are falling into that category of indifferent to all of this. Because, Father, in a very real sense, they're proving themselves to not be followers of Christ. And they do put themselves in peril of being on the wrong side of all of this. And so, God, here's what I would, I would pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would, would dog them this week, pursue them, follow them. I pray, God, that if they're walking out of this room not ready to give their life to Christ, that, that they would be reminded of this message throughout this week, that you would not relent and you would pursue them. That, Father, they would finally and ultimately bend their knee and surrender their life to Jesus Christ and set themselves on the course to be one of those who receives forever the kingdom of God. So Father, send your Holy Spirit to work on us and hear us now as we lift our voices to worship you in this place. In Christ's name, amen.